Well, hey, Mike. Welcome to our show. Hey. How's it going? It's going. We're, uh... It's new. It's been a while. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the last time we did this, but... My dog is excited. He's going to make noise now, because, you know, yeah. he hasn't been in a while, and it seems like the right time to do that. <laughs> Mine is asleep, but uh, she was eating compost earlier, so I think she's got a little upset yeah, that always puts me to sleep too. Um, so, uh, technology industry. Has there been any divergent news lately that we should talk about? I, I don't know. I don't really. Anything I can think of. I think so. we released all that software, and now we've been working. That's on done, it. right? Yeah. That we did. We did like a. We talked about that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pretty okay. sure. So. New hire, but that's about it. Yeah. Signed a lease. Moving spaces, but same as the old space, so not a big deal. New, new support system. Yeah, someday, soon. There's a chance I might have accidentally emailed some people. Oh, man. So if you got an email from our new support ticketing system, uh, sorry about that. What'd you do? I, I, may, I don't know. The, the thing I asked about? Well, I didn't think it had happened when you asked. It was then later that I started to think that maybe it had Maybe maybe all 500 people did get an email? Maybe. Okay. That's good. Not sure yet. Okay. So, um, let's go on strike. I, I am already. Yeah, I guess we... I'm going to unionize. I'm trying to come up with a segue, Mike. I know. Um, yeah. VFX Oscars this week. What what's this all about? Like, what the VFX industry is a complete uh, nightmare. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, so they're like the one major section of Hollywood production that is not unionized at this point, and it seems like that's in large part because they didn't want to because they like their awesome salaries and stuff. And a lot of the, I mean, most. VFX people are sort of full-time salaried employees, not like freelancers. Right. And so, but yeah, but, you know, in the last 10 years, it's gotten both really easy to open a VFX house and really hard to keep them open. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I think there's some causal relationship there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, at the Oscars, it was a big deal because Life of Pi sort of swept everything. And uh, the company that did most of the effects, Rhythm and Hughes, is in Chapter 11 again? Yeah, they just just filed uh, like last week or a couple weeks ago for bankruptcy. But this is not even the first time they've done that, is it? It's it's hard to keep track because these companies go through so many iterations with similar names and... Um, but yeah, and then, uh, you know, the Oscars sort of cut off a speech about, uh, how difficult the VFX industry is. Yeah. By the people who won the best effects, right? Yeah. But this has been, this has been building for a while. I mean, um, what was, yeah, it seems like this is, I mean, I can't tell because I mean, we obviously have a lot of VFX people in our Twitter feeds. Um, and so I don't know if this, this may be the first time it's ever become like a general knowledge sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm not even sure it actually did that. I'm not sure anyone 
No, I think this outside is... of our little sphere even noticed the guy getting cut off. They're just like, oh, yeah, he did talk a long time. 30 seconds. Whoa. Yeah, I think this is still mostly in the echo chamber. Um, but it seems like the the Oscar moment was a catalyst within the industry to start maybe having a more substantive, 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 thank you, yeah. uh, conversation about about the working conditions in the VFX industry. I mean, you know, it's this, it's this mix of, um, outsourcing. So a lot of the sort of low skill work can really easily be sent to China or India or Korea or some of these other places now, um, for like Roto and paint. Um, and you know, technology's caught up that sort of bandwidth isn't an issue for that. And lots of other things that used to keep that from happening aren't issues. And then you've also got competition within the States and from Canada, to move post out of California, which is a, a big issue for a lot of people. And right, so because of subsidies, right. Um, and then you've also got, you know, you've got a few big players in the space and lots of little boutique houses, um, that are willing to cut their throats to get a job, even if they're going to lose money on that job. Um, right. And then you also have the issue that like you, well, I mean, I think one of the big problems is you have, these small houses that use all this incredibly cheap off-the-shelf software, like After Effects. And then you have that, like, there's that 20% problem where the last 20% of these movies is, like, these crazy pipelines that a few really, you know, like Industrial Light and Magic or a Rhythm and Hughes or something with their, like, where they're writing, like, entire shader platforms and, like, nodal compositors in-house. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know. There's just such a huge divide between those two. It's hard, you know, it, it's both hard to expect someone to pay, you know, twice or four times as much for that last 5% on the shot. And it's also hard to, you know, I don't know what, it's sort of an untenable situation for everyone. Right. And I mean, Except for the, you know, Hollywood producers who are still making metric ass loads of money. Well, except on paper. Right. <laughs> um, but so I don't know. I mean, so here's what I don't understand. Is there any other industry where this would happen without... I mean, so all of the movies, the best movies this year were effects-driven. Correct? Mm. I mean, best... I mean, maybe not Argo. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so hard to say because, you know, nowadays... Definitely all the blockbusters, like all the well, of course. high-grossing films. But, I, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, part of the point is that even an Argo probably had an awful lot of green screen work and an awful lot of digital makeup and, you know, all kinds of other stuff sure. from post houses. But let's say, but, you know, but okay, so that's the kind of stuff that you can boutique out, let's say. But, like, a movie like The Avengers where, sure. like, you need an industrial light and magic or something like that. You know, people with, like, lots of in-house. Right, where you're talking thousands of shots and right. complete And you're talking about, like, entire render farms under your control and an entire soup-to-nuts pipeline that's custom and all this stuff. Like, most of the highest-grossing movies are those kind of movies at this point, right? Right. And so what percentage... It just seems like I like what I don't understand is why has no one with a lot of money said, you know, why hasn't anyone else done the Pixar model except for a live action film? 
where they're like, well, we have all these computers and we have animators. Why don't we just, you know, put on a show? Like, why is Industrial Light Magic nickel and diming on these giant movies, you know, nickel and diming million-dollar contracts, billion-dollar contracts, when they could just get a script? Well, but, I mean, historically, like, ILM is a good example. It was sort of sister, brother to Lucasfilm. Right. And so they had that relationship. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean... You know, DreamWorks, I think, has internal... Well, there's Sony Pictures, right? Yeah. And DreamWorks are the same? Are they? I can't remember. Sony Pictures, DreamWorks? Is that a thing? Or is that just two different words put together? I'm not sure. I mean, but it's always interesting to look at an Avengers or something and look at the credits and say, well, yeah, ILM obviously was the big name there, but um, there's, you know, 50 other post shops that were given, you know, this particular shop. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, they, you know, the timelines are so short on some of these things now that you can't do it all in-house. And two, like... If you're, you know, there's just not that desire, I don't think, among these places to have, to be both like a white label, high end, you know, powerhouse and do all the the crap work in house. Yeah. You know, it's still, I mean, that's kind of how we got into this position is they, you know, they were very eager to, you know, move as much of the roto work and the other busy work out of house. Yeah. And, you know, they've succeeded in training large swaths of people who can now do that, who aren't in house anymore. I mean, most of this issue seems like the sort of thing that will self-correct, I guess, is my take on it. Um, that, you know, the industry, we have to remember that this is still a really young industry, especially in this iteration of it. And I think a lot of the, this is sort of typical growing pains as the industry figures out what's the right size for a shop, what's sustainable. And, you know, a lot of people will go out of business in this process, but some people will figure out how to sort of justify their existence in a way that lets them make money. Yeah. And well, and part of this is a globalization issue too. I mean, yeah, exactly. There are lots of, there are lots of countries that can contribute good-looking effects now, but don't have the sort of film industry that can buy good-looking effects. Yep. I mean, which I, is always a problem. I think that, that, you know, that answers the issue of the, at the post-house level, I think that the issue of the individual VFX artist is sort of a separate issue. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, there's the employment issue, just in terms of if you're a kid coming out of Full sale right now, what does your career path look like? But, um, there's also this sort of working conditions issue. I mean, you know, these VFX artists, at least to hear them talk on Twitter, seem pretty miserable. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the problem. I mean, this happens in every industry where more people want to do it than are needed. Right. You know, and I don't know what you do about that. I mean, I guess you unionize and you make life fairly cushy for the few people who make it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we've done with acting. Right. Not that uh, there aren't lots of people who, you know, but like it's either, either you don't do it for a living or you do it for a, you know, comfortable living. Yeah. Like, you know, you're at least, you know, comfortable middle-class lifestyle if you're acting. 
if not, you know, it's a thing you do on the side and then you have another job that pays your bills. Right. Yeah. I, know. I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, we've got, I'm not o- sure that's a better situation. <laughs> right. Yeah. We've got an oversupply of artists, it seems. And that's allowing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's too much cachet in it. Well, I mean, you know, in in a lot of ways, though, it reminds me of, you know, if you enrolled, like many of my um, classmates did, if you enrolled in a computer science program in 1999, 2000, right at the peak of the dot-com bubble, thinking you were going to be a sort of rock star programmer um, in the web bubble, you graduated and you ended up sort of taking a job writing Java report generation code for a mid-level, you know, Fortune 1000. And if you were lucky. Right, but uh, the difference to that is that's a job. That's like it, a decent job. Well, yeah. and then you've watched that get, you know, outsourced and globalized. But, um, but no, I think it, but what I'm speaking to more so, I think, is the glamour that, you know, if you go into the VFX industry thinking that it's going to be sort of a Pixar style environment uh, with, with bean bags and sort of lots of good food and hanging out and doing creative things in, in a, you know, movie environment. And then you find out that in reality, you're going to work 60 to 80 hour weeks in a cubicle staring at a computer with a, you know, a manager who's kind of a jerk and a, you know, administrative assistant who's passive aggressive about ordering office supplies. I mean, because it's an office, right? Um, but if you, if you go into it sort of having bought into that glamor, um, you know, I would guess the. I would guess you get that most of the time. Like, I think most of these places that are going out of business are more than happy to throw some beanbag chairs around, mm-hmm. because that's a lot easier than sending someone home after forty hours, and it's a lot easier than, you know, giving them days off when they're sick, and it's a lot easier than you know letting them leave for an hour to have lunch. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a companies have learned it's really easy to keep people around. Yeah. I I'd be curious to know, yeah, because it is really hard when the only feedback we're getting right now is is primarily from people within the industry to sort of have a more objective comparison to what the issues really are. Yeah, I mean I don't know. I am. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll throw a, a link into some news about this whole kerfuffle, um, and also I mean, what's 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 stupefying about it is that Hollywood doesn't seem to get like it seems like the like the 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 match that lit this Tinder box had nothing to do with giving these people, you know, better hours or any of that stuff that like, you know, like, I don't think there's like, realistically, I don't think that's going to happen. They're never going to unionize. I don't don't think that happens anymore. Um, You know, they should have done that in the Um, (laughs) twenties before they had computers and before we could, you know, so easily move stuff around. Um, but, you know, like, it seems like most of the, you know, you just don't, there's, so you need to have a few old guys around to sort of teach stuff. 
But like, this is just going to be one of those industries that's run on kids. Like, it yep. just churn, you know, chews up kids and spits them out. Yeah. And like, at the end of the day, you don't need to do much to make that work economically. Like, you need to have free soda, you need to have pizza, you need to have beanbag chairs, and you need to make them feel cool every year at the Oscars. Like, and that's the one thing they fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, just give them, like, a little, like, look at all these cool shots, and then, like, you know, make just make them look like you actually think they're important. And most of this would just go away. Yeah, I... I mean, I, I guess part of the point is that uh, Hollywood's always been broken in interesting ways as compared to any other business, yeah. any other industry. I mean, the fact that movies never actually make money, you know, the, just the whole way the studio system works. There's, yeah, so many things that are just different. And I think trying to, you know normalize that within the context of the software industry in general or something. It just is always going to look a little strange. Yeah. So, um, one other link we'll throw out there is this, uh, because of VFX article or, um, Tumblr before VFX, Bf- before VFX, um, yes. which is fun. It's just screen still shots from movies before any VFX work has been done. Sort of gives you an idea how much of a movie is real nowadays. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, does this, like, it makes me kind of sad. What, the movies are so... Yeah, that, like, people don't actually have to build sets anymore and go out and... I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, obviously, it makes sense for, obviously, for a big action movie, but also just for, um, you know, almost anything nowadays with, with permit issues and security issues and... Um, just everything else it's right but i mean there's also plenty of other stuff that's happening without it and i mean there's also you know we're seeing like a more vibrant documentary market than has ever existed before so i mean i see why things are diverging mm-hmm. yeah i don't know it seems like dogma kind of ran its course you don't hear about it much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it was it, it, interesting to flip through this uh, Tumblr. Just think about some of these things. Uh, what else is on the uh, list of stuff to talk about? Um, you got these this YouTube thing? What's this? Uh, well, this is just, you know, I, I'm... Always interested in accessibility things and and like you know um, translation and and uh, uh, localization things and so YouTube has had for a while an auto they've had text to speech or speech to text recognition of videos and then they would sort of automatically run them through Google Translate to do a translation and I've always thought that was a fairly gimmicky thing because it was never good enough it was horrible yeah worth doing but they've now offered a um they've now offered a paid translation service um, so is this paid transcription too so that's a separate thing that you can you know have your video transcribed by automatic sync and I'm not sure Google's offering that side of things but they will then translate a transcription if you've got one that you've added um and they will actually, um, 
I think I read, now I'm wondering, um, that they would sort of help you through their own analytics to figure out which languages to translate your video into. And so I guess the point is that, um, you know, a lot of, if you're a sort of mid-tier to larger content producers, you're generally getting your stuff transcribed or captioned um, because of accessibility requirements in general. Mm -hmm. And so if you've already got that, this becomes a really cheap way to open your content up to new audiences. Um, And they'll actually, I think, look at who's accessing your video, and then you can tell them to sort of go out and have it translated for you. Hmm. Um, And and pricing's really quite quite reasonable, Um, you know, a few bucks. Interesting. So, you know, stuff like this is just cool. Um, anything that sort of leverages people in an interesting way to do these sorts of things is um, pretty cool. And, and obviously having content more accessible is great as well. Yeah. As an entirely related but also unrelated sidebar, we should um, link to the... I was watching like a Swedish chef video from uh-huh. um, the Muppets and I turned on the captions the other day <laughs> and it, it totally tried to make words up for it. It's great. Awesome. I highly recommend it. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Just hit the CC button on Swedish chef. Yeah. He keeps talking about horse meatballs, which is just crazy. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Me, because he's Swedish and Ikea. Yes, I got it. It's ah, funny. Poor ah. That's actually how I got to the video. I'm sure. It was was with that exact joke. Yeah. But it's okay. Yeah. You really don't want to know what's in their horse burgers. Ugh. <laughs> uh, Google Glass. Google Glass, Google Glass, Google Glass. The Verge this week, uh, Josh Topolsky... Uh, got access to a pair of Google Glass, or a no, it's not even a pair. What do you? What are we? What is our unit? Got access to a Google Glass? No, he got access to Google Glasses. No, Google Google's glasses. Google's glass. No, I don't know. A Google Glass. Yes, he got access to a Google Glass, um, and wrote an article on The Verge. And like actually got to use it and wear it around and stuff. And I think he's one of the first outsiders to actually get to do this. Um, and, you know, wrote a very thorough review and, and I think relatively glowing that the technology sort of works as advertised. Um, what do you think of Google Glass? And I know, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, so here's the thing. It just, uh, what the, they're trying to solve a problem. And they're not. I think it's like I'm trying to figure out if they just got the problem wrong, but no, they seem to have the problem. The problem is that people like look at their damn phones too much. Right. Right. And so their solution is to just make it so that you're always looking at your. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm sorry, but if I ever like. Can you imagine, like, sitting with someone, yeah. having a conversation with these fucking things on? <laughs> like, and I mean, you know, so here's the thing. Like, I'm okay with someone checking their watch during a conversation. So maybe this will all just, like, in a thousand years, we'll get used to it. But, like... Well, except that this is also voice-controlled. So, like, you're in a conversation and all of a sudden your buddy's like, okay, Glass, no, no. can you... But they're not going to do that. Yeah. 
No one's that big of a jackass. Mm, plenty of people are that big of a jackass. But you're not going to, like, try to, you know, do that. Sure. Like like you do with your phone. Like, where you take your phone out and go, like, mm, why did it buzz? Right, right. Whereas this is just going to, like, it's going to buzz, and then the little thing's going to pop up in your field of view, and you're going to, like, look up and to the right, and the person you're with is going to be like, oh, awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know... Because I spent some time thinking about it after watching, because Josh has a pretty good video just, you know, documenting his experience with it. And Google also released a video that shows the actual UI for the first time. So that's interesting, too, if you haven't checked that out. But, uh, you know, part of my thinking is that there just isn't that much time each day where I, like, where I care about anything that my phone or my Google glass can do for me because I spend most of my time like working or eating or, you know, like it, what it are just you talking about what that no. Cause you spend most of your time, your day working and eating also looking at your phone. No, I said, spend them staring at a computer. You also check your phone. I think, I think you've just like internalized it to the point now where you don't notice you're doing it. No. I'm just saying, I have never been out in public with you where you go with five minutes without checking your phone. Right. But that's yeah. like, that's when I'm not at my computer or sitting at my desk eating or, you know, okay, I just, so when you're not in front of your computer. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying like the number of occasions in which I would need to like flip my head up and say, okay, glass, take a photo. I just don't know that it, like, I mean, the, I think. I think all of that is just sort of a weird stopgap because they can't be Google Now-y enough yet. Right. Or whatever it's called. Like, I think in the end, this becomes, like, you just remove all that. You have no interface to it. And it's just constantly, it's just like an open pipe where the internet is sending you shit that you should be seeing instead of doing whatever you're doing. I mean, you know, like, I mean, I think people are a little paranoid about that right now, but I think that's the direction this goes. Yeah. Like over time, you don't react, you don't interact with it more. You interact with it less. Right. I mean, there are certainly instances where this would be really cool. Like if I'm working on my car with, you know, both hands holding something, being able to say like, you know, okay, glass, what's the, you know, recommended torque for this bolt and have it search the web and find it. Like, that's awesome. Right. Like, you know, undeniably that's cool. Um, I'm just not, you know, the problem with glass is that it's the sort of thing that you kind of need to have on all the time for the 1% of the occasions in which it's really useful. And it's so in your face, quite literally, that I'm not sure people are really going to be interested in having it on all the time. I don't know. You know how many times, like since, I mean, they've done a push in the last week with PR. Like before now, they were pretty quiet about it. And with this article and with they did one in the New York Times, which I think is probably an even bigger deal than the Verge one um, for them. Like, I think that's a right. bigger hit for them. Well, Topolsky was on the Today Show this week talking about it. I mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, they're obviously trying to get this out in front of people. But, like, every single person I know asked me about them. You know, like my sister, hmm. who, like... You know, I, I mean, she has a computer and stuff, but she's not, like, in any way technical. She, like, wrote me a text and said, have you heard about Google Glass? <laughs> you know? And, like, yeah. 
the you know the like the clients we have the guys who do medical imaging yeah that we that we have like a contract with they were like we so we need to start talking about how we're going to integrate with google Glass. it's like yeah. what no we don't need to start talking about that so i mean it's obviously i can i mean i can certainly see them being useful in specialty fields although i don't know that it'll be I mean, there's obviously lots of other people developing similar technology to put a screen in front of your eyes in some way. Right. I don't know. I mean... I just don't know what the... there's. I'm not sure what the there is here. Yeah. I agree. I mean, and... I mean, I, 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 mean, I think I see it. I just... I don't like it. I, it's definitely at $1,500 a non-starter. Like... Yeah. Probably. Um... I mean, it's going to be that thing that, like, the guy who bought a Laserdisc player is going to buy and wear around and yeah, casually mention it's okay to ask him questions about it. Well, like someone yeah. said on Twitter, it's like a segue for your face. Yeah. yeah. I guess. Except no one bought a Segway. Maybe these will be rented out to tourists. Yeah. Well, yeah. Actually, then maybe they'll be rented out to tourists. I, I mean, that's, you know, there are interesting... I. The launch version, I don't think, is going to be quite capable of doing, like, true augmented reality stuff or that kind of thing. But They have a GPS in them. Yeah, I mean, they've got the, all the hardware. I'm just not sure processing-wise. and uh, I'm going to right now. Yeah. But uh, totally do that. That's what they're going to be used for. That'd be pretty cool. I mean, you know, it'll be interesting. I, I'll be watching with much anticipation, and it'll be really curious to see if we get some sort of wearable device from Apple. Is there this year an SDK for this? Is this like a thing? Uh, yeah, isn't that wasn't that the whole point? That like, I mean, it's Android. Yeah, but obviously. some some people have had them already doing. Oh yeah, the developers versions. Yeah. Man, that's I mean, a good idea. I still really like my Pebble, so there's definitely something to these ubiquitous wearable devices or i mean always with you always glanceable wearable things i'm just not sure glass is it so okay you're still using your pebble what is it did you use it for anything other than telling the time yeah i mean i I'm, i really am enjoying it for text notifications and for incoming call notifications um and you know like i've got it set up so that when we get a zendesk ticket it alerts on my wrist and you know. <laughs> but i mean the thing is, like I if i'm cooking or i'm out walking or whatever it helps me decide whether i need to actually you know pull my phone out when i hear it vibrate it's less intrusive than actually taking the phone out so you've actually gotten to the point now where you've trained yourself to look at your phone instead of pulling your phone out of your pocket look at my wrist i mean yeah absolutely because it vibrates and you just look down and there's the text and if it's something you don't need to respond to you just you know ignore it and if it is then you can pull the phone out but it helps you do that initial filter and and you know i'm finding most of the time i don't need to um and it's great for calls too to you know know whether i need to bother answering something which you know in my case means like do i need to take my gloves off and get the phone out of the pocket and yeah yeah i mean i can see see this is the thing like this is what i was saying before i can see there being sort of a sweet spot around a phone or around a watch because we seem to have sort of codified that culturally you know right like it's okay in a conversation to look at your watch I mean, it's a little insulting, but it's not a lot insulting. 
You know, it's not like pulling your phone out is. Yes. So maybe, I don't know. I mean, as long as, I don't know, maybe, I mean, maybe that'll go away soon when the phone, when it's obvious that they're looking at something in the time. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. I mean, as, as I say, as either, you know, if, if the Pebble ecosystem comes together, which I think is maybe 50-50, but more interestingly as... Before being crushed by the iWatch. Well, that or also just it seems like the Pebble people are having some problems uh, sort of getting that act together on that. So we'll, we'll see what comes of it. I just, I don't know right now. But yeah, um, or whether Apple comes out and just uh, actually does something interesting in the space. We'll see. Um, I suspect killing off the nano form yeah. factor was a precursor to this. Yeah. But it, it definitely, you know, I'm whatever two weeks into it or something. It feels like there's a there there because I, I really do like having it. So we'll see. Hmm. Um, so what about taking this to the next extreme? Uh, would you ever do a direct brain integration? This is a segue. I can tell. <laughs> they work better when you I know. I can actually right. hear that segue being built. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, I guess like. Okay, so let's just let's. <laughs> there's, a, there's an article. <laughs> we got a link to it. Yeah, it's about a scientist gave rats the ability to see infrared that's right right? yeah but they did it not by like hacking their eyes but by actually like adding a sensor to the rat that detects infrared and then wiring it into the brain plugging it into like the wrong part of the brain even yeah sound part of the brain a touch part and then they trained the rats to sort of differentiate between touch and infrared and the rats actually started using this new skill Right. I mean, the weird thing is it sounds like from everything I've read about this, like you don't really train that. It just kind of happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, they started. Yeah. Like, I mean, they've had like camera based systems for blind people that for a while now that are electrodes that you stick on your tongue. Yeah. And people just have over time learn how to make that into visual data in their head or at least you know whatever you want to consider something you see with i mean once it's in your head it's not visual anymore but yeah i mean it's just so brains are crazy (laughs) yeah i mean this uh this is a really cool we'll link to just the little survey article from the verge but uh it's pretty cool research that they're doing, um, both in terms of the actual integration, but also in the ways they're sort of tracking how the brain is responding um, and logging out that information for later analysis. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I'd be all for this. Like, I'd totally plug stuff into my brain. It sounds like it's not that far away. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they figured out, like, they spent a lot of time thinking we were going to map these things out with like electrodes in the brain. Right. And then we got fMRI and then we just realized it didn't matter. Just stick an electrode in there somewhere. And as long as it's part of one of the senses, it'll, your brain will figure it out. Yeah. Like don't plug it into like your, you know, your pituitary gland or anything. But as long as it's like an area that's designed to make sense out of, noise it will learn to make sense out of that noise yeah 
brains brains are cool they're very they're pretty cool yeah um there's another project i'll have to dig up the link for this one that i was reading about this week that they're trying to um basically map all the neurons in a brain like oh the connectome yeah is that it the one that they're just slicing brains and and yeah there was like a ted about that a couple years ago was it okay it was just something new. I mean, it was in the Economist this week, but um, about the, the basically their approach is to construct this data set and then put it out there in the hopes that someone will see some sort of higher order pattern or organization to some of these things. Yeah, it also sounds like it's one of those scalability problems right now. I yeah. mean, last time I heard about it, they were doing like a square millimeter, and they were pretty sure they were never going to get through it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of connections in the human brain. Something like, I don't know, more than all the stars in the universe. It's, yeah, fairly significant. But, uh, anywho, it's cool, though. I I think, I mean, you know, I think about these just timeline-wise, I suspect that this is one of those things that in our lifetimes will become reality. Oh, sure. Which, you know, so that's good. That means in the next, like, 20 years this will happen. Yeah. Wait, you're, you're pretty old. I'm getting there. That's true. 55? Yeah, probably. It's good. Why am I saving for retirement? That's the question. I, I should be know. spending that money. Probably should. Yeah. You shouldn't. Board scars. Wait, are we mocking me now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um... You know what the sports car of cameras is? <laughs> it is either the Sony F65 or the Red Epic, uh, depending on which side of this lawsuit you're on. Uh, so Red Suit Sony. What do you think of this? Um, so I didn't pay any attention to this. No. Tell me tell me what happened. Red, Red has Red a couple... Is suing because... Red has a couple patents... Right, but they were like on something dumb, like recording a compressed format. Yeah, internal, raw, right? compressed or something. Yeah. Um, and you know they allege that Sony intentionally infringed. Like Sony knew they had this patent and said, "Screw it, man, we don't care. We're going to build our camera anyways." Right. Um, which probably is true. I mean, yeah. it's very likely true. Yes. My reaction to this was I, I imagine Red is in the right on this, um, but you don't sue someone like Sony for patent infringement when you build hardware because right. there is... There's a reason why Sony intentionally infringed this patent is because they know they are going to win. Right, because there is absolutely no world in which Red does not violate a ton of Sony patents. Yeah. Um. And so I think it's inter- I mean, it's an interesting strategy from Red, and and who knows what is really going on behind the scenes, or what you know. I mean, so my here's my assumptions, or you know, just crazy theories. Um, I think that Jim, the owner of Red, is kind of bored. Um, I think he is surprised that he hasn't been acquired yet. Mm-hmm. And I think this, it might be an attempt for that. Interesting. Cause I mean, he's already kind of given up on the company and moved on. Hasn't he? Like he doesn't run yeah. the thing anymore. Yeah. 
And I it, know. It's just like when I heard this, I was like, oh, yeah, so you want Sony to buy you as part of this whole yeah. thing. Well, and I think, I mean, it does seem like Red's maybe been surprised by how quickly the industry's caught up got, to, gotten up to speed, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they're just, you know, they they were like, you know, they were stars for a while, but now it's just a slog. Like, yep. now it's just like, can we produce more units than the other guys for less money? Like, it doesn't, I can see why they've lost the, why the magic is gone. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I guess the flip side is that Jim, in a lot of ways, reminds me of Elon Musk in that he doesn't, he's, you know, a, he takes his company very personally, or at least has in the past. Yeah. Um, And so this could also just be that he was personally offended by Sony flagrantly violating a patent that he felt very strongly about and sort of said, damn the consequences. Right. We're going to do that too. Make these people, you know, and, and it's not unlike, you know, at a much bigger level, Apple versus Samsung and, and the fact that, you know, Steve was very personally driving that lawsuit because he felt personally, uh, right. insulted by the fair. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out and what the, you know, next couple of years look like for red. If they do try and stick around as an independent company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, last article I wanted to talk about this MIT led that, outputs more light than the energy it uses. Okay, yeah. This is this, pretty cool. I saw this go around. What the fuck? So it... I mean, the, the the basic gist is that it's an LED that can use heat from the environment around it in addition to electrical input to generate light. Okay. So I have a few questions about this. Yes. Does it only work as long as you are pumping heat into the system? Obviously. Yes. Um, is there any reason you need the electricity? Um, I think so, because I think that it is part of sort of bootstrapping the process and, okay. but I'm not um, certain about that. So, yeah, I mean, it's neat, I guess. I just, so yeah. Okay. So it's not, they, so they claim it's more than a hundred percent efficient they say greater than 200 percent which is only because the way we measure efficiency of light bulbs takes into account heat loss right okay because it can't be more than 100 percent efficient (laughs) um okay so it's yeah so electrical input to light so that must suck they must either be incredibly dim and are going to be hard to scale up or they must be like doesn't this just create an entirely new problem so right now the problem with led lights is we have to keep them cool or they burn out right don't we just have a problem with like condensation now yeah i mean like are we gonna have to stick giant heat sinks on these like we do now and then figure out someone like dehumidify them I don't know. Or can you like turn this down and be like, actually, we just want a hundred percent. I'm not certain. Um, Cause if they can get like a hundred percent efficiency, if it's just like makes no heat and absorbs no heat and just is like bright, that's perfect. That's like ideal. Unless we're putting them in a fridge. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, or can you like make? Like, I just imagine people making these like banks of lights, which are like some super LEDs and some regular LEDs to keep the whole thing balanced. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it, it, unfortunately, the article is not, the actual journal article is not available um, publicly yet. Um, so I don't, I don't really know. Um, there's the precious little actual data about what's going on or about how this process works. Um, so it's something I think mostly... I just imagine that when this comes down to it, like, I can't imagine it's incredibly efficient at both. You know what I mean? Like, I think we're going to find out, like... Oh, we put it in an oven. Or, oh, we had a blowtorch on it, you know? Right. Like, because, I mean, like, we have circuitry designed for heat transfer electrically right now, and it's hideously inefficient. You know? I mean, we have Paseo coolers. Right. And heaters. And so the idea that this thing is more efficient than that and also happens to put out light, like... I mean, so here's where this gets really cool, if it works. I mean, really at any efficiency. Um, is, you know, it's almost cooler. It's almost more, pr- there's almost more practical use for it as a cooler than as a light. Yeah. Depending on what that sort of profile of how efficient it is at both of these two things. Because the problem with... Paseo coolers is that all they are is heat pumps. They just move the heat across the thing. And they're actually very inefficient at it. So as they cool something, the hot side is markedly hotter than the cold side. It's colder. So you're actually, you know, if you move like 10 BTUs across this thing, you actually are outputting like 20 BTUs on the hot side. Right. So you actually create a lot of waste heat in the process of moving the heat. Um, And so if they can do this, you know, like you could conceivably, because light you can get out of a system relatively easily. Sure. Without, you know, you don't need to deal with like, uh, what are those things called? Like cooling pipes. Heat pipes? Heat pipes, yeah. Like you could just fiber optically dump it somewhere. Yeah. Um, and you dump it at great distance too. Um, so I don't know. It's cool. I don't know if it. Yeah, I'd really like to read the actual paper. Um, maybe I'll have to go looking for someone who's pirated it. Because I guess, yeah, because the. Huh. Actually. Because the other great thing about it is so it's turning some of the heat into light. And light is like, it's. It's not that much different than heat. I mean, it's still radiation, and it's still whatnot. But what's, you know, the problem with heat is that it's hard to disperse it across the surface area. Right. Whereas heat in the form of light is really easy to disperse across a large surface area. You just stick a lens on it. Mm-hmm. And so it makes heat sinks really easy to build if you do this. Because if nothing else, you could just fiber optically dump the light everywhere, you know, like split it into a bunch of pieces and stick it everywhere or, you know, shoot it at a mirror ball. I don't know. It's neat. I just got a copy of the paper, so. Oh, cool. I want it. Yeah. Is it in the show notes? I will. uh, (laughs) 
begin Aaron Schwartz it for us? Well, I, well, I got, I re- realized that I've had this bookmark bookmarklet in my Safari bookmarks bar for ages that, uh, tries Steals. to no it tries to load a website via the university of minnesota's library system uh proxy or something and i clicked that button and then all of a sudden i had the paper huh. it's pretty cool i've never actually used it before so props to u of m libraries is that like a thing they released well i mean for people on campus like i was already logged into the university system huh. so interesting yeah. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. So I will read this and report back, and I will okay. share it with you as well. Please do. Uh, you got any chatter this week? I do. So. I don't know what it is. Oh. The very cool computer history museum down in uh, Mountain View. You may remember them from a little while ago with the. Oh, when they released the source to what were we talking about? They releasing the source to um, QuickDraw, yeah, Mac Paint. Well, they've continued on that awesome trend, and they have worked with Adobe to release the source code to Photoshop version 1.0, which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. This um, is uh, what was it? Was it Pascal or Fortran? Now I don't remember. Back then, it would have been Pascal. Yeah, okay. Um, I have not downloaded it yet. I grabbed a copy, but I did not actually look at it. Um, <laughs> I did, when it came out, print out the entire source code to QuickDraw and put it on my wall for a little bit. So I need to see how big this is. Yeah. This may be good. It's. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. It's... Um, it's just nice to know that people are actually thinking about capturing these parts of our computer history. Yeah. I mean, so I guess, I mean, it brings up the question, what you do with this part of our computer history? Right now, nothing. It's just a novelty. But in 50 or 100 years, I think that these are the sorts of documents that historians use to construct a narrative. Reconstruct the Pascal language. Well, no, to think about, you know, what our approach to software development was, how we were dealing with the limitations and, you know, a good sort of someone working in the future will look at this and be able to extrapolate lessons on some piece of new technology that they're dealing with in their day. I mean, that's how history works. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So. Has anyone done like you know, there's, like, the new, like, Googles, and then it's not Zeitgeist. What's the thing where they do? Is it Zeitgeist? Where they do the text, textual analysis of all the books they've scanned? Oh, uh, no, that's not Zeitgeist. It's something else, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, has anyone started doing that with, like, source code repositories? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I've seen people do things as I mean, things like novelties, but yes. Yeah. Things like GitHub have done their little posters about what languages are most popular and whatnot. Well, and like, you know, what swear words are most common in yeah. comments and those kinds yeah. of things, but based uh, on which language. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but it seems like there's something we could maybe learn from all this. Yeah. Well, but that's why it's important that someone's capturing this stuff before yeah. it's totally lost. Um, so that we have the opportunity. Yeah. Um, my chatter this week actually is similar. Um, it's about both preserving photograph, photograph prints and also uh, validating them. That it, the, the gist of the article is that within the art world, uh, photographic prints have historically been relatively 
low value, even from, you know, famous Mm -hmm. photographers. And that's starting to change. And it's creating this realization that the art industry, the the art market does not currently do a great job of provenance. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring out what's a legit print, what's not. And also just how to, you know, restore and preserve, uh, original prints. Um, and it, so it's interesting to sort of read about how the industry is trying to get up to speed on some of this stuff. Um, so, yeah. mm. good read. Interesting. Yeah. So that's all we got. Hi, cat. Yeah. Cat. Cats. Cat. Cat. Um, that was a noisy one. The cat. Just this whole thing. My animals are very noisy today. Oh, and mine's not. It's strange. I should probably replace them with... I don't know. Maybe we should do these out of the office. I always thought the office... No, the office is even noisier now. Yeah. Maybe the new office, though. Yeah. At least for the month or two, I'm the only person there. Oh, we can put up egg crates on all your walls. (laughs) On the glass. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, currently we are the only tenants in the new office building, so I'm gonna have to it come out so that we can play uh, bowling in the halls. What's the thing with the, the all glass halls? Street like street ball, uh, street hockey, yeah. stick ball, stick ball. No street street hockey. Oh, okay. If you say so. Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, we'll report back to everyone. Have a good week, Mike. Adios.